Good morning again. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 25. Our sermon text for this morning is Acts 25, 13 through Acts 26, 32. It's all uh, Paul's stance before King Agrippa. And before we read that passage together, let's, let's pray together. Father, we come because we need to hear your voice. Uh, we need to hear you speaking to us through the scriptures, by your spirit. We need to hear you speaking into our lives, our hearts, our situations, our troubles, our trials, our temptations, our sins. Father, we pray that, that we would hear you this morning, that we would be, uh, that we would, that our eyes would be open to the truths of your gospel, that our, that we would find joy in your son Jesus. We pray that you would uh, come and be with us now by your spirit to these ends. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts 25, beginning with verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him, therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. 
especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appointed you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. <coughs> Yesterday, there was a shooting in a synagogue. 
The shooting seems to have been fueled by uh, anti-Semitism or the anti-Jewish sentiment, among other things. I don't know anything about yesterday's shooter, but sometimes, both today and historically, Christians have been guilty of anti-Semitism. And so it's important for us to say that anti-Semitism is antithetical to the gospel. And that's true for at least two reasons, though probably many more. Uh, The first is that all forms of racism are antithetical to the gospel. The gospel message is for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, black or white, American or Arab, or any other such distinction. Race and nationality become irrelevant at the foot of the cross. But second, and this is where it connects to our text this morning, our gospel is a Jewish gospel. This morning we're going to look at Paul's defense before King Agrippa, and fundamentally, Paul's defense is this. I have always been a zealous Jew. I hope in the Jewish promises. I preach nothing but the Jewish scriptures, and I am living in obedience to the Jewish Messiah. You know, sometimes even Paul has been accused of anti-Semitism, which is absurd, not just because Paul himself was Jewish, but because Paul saw his message in fundamental agreement with all that had come before. So in our text this morning, uh, we see Paul. Paul, uh, once again, standing before the Roman authorities. Uh, This time it's not a trial, per se. Uh, Governor Festus has decided to honor Paul's appeal to Caesar, but in order to ship Paul off to Caesar, Festus must give some account of the issues. Uh, In chapter 25, verse 27, the last verse, Festus says, it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. But Festus doesn't know exactly what to say. Uh, he hasn't found grounds for any real charge against Paul. And so our, our, most of our text, at least this morning, is Paul making his defense while Governor Festus and King Agrippa try to determine what the charges actually are. And the question they are asking is, is what is the issue here? And so Paul makes his defense, explaining not so much his actions, but his gospel. And he tells us four things about his gospel. He talks about the gospel's source. He says that is Moses and the prophets. He talks about the gospel's message, resurrection victory. He talks about the gospel's implications, repentance and inclusion among the people of God. And we see in his interactions with Festus and Agrippa, the gospel's offense humbling madness. So you see those four points on the outline. You can follow along if you want on the back of your bulletin. They're listed there. So this morning we're going to look at the gospel, and I'm going to be using that word quite a bit, the word gospel. So let me just begin by saying the word gospel uh, simply means good news. And so uh, we're going to be asking questions about the good news of Christianity. First we'll talk about the gospel's source, Moses and the prophets. You know, when people come to us with potentially life-changing information, we want to know whether it's true. And the first question we ask is, where did you hear that? Or who told you that? And the way we determine if if something is reliable is by looking at its source. And if they respond, well, I read it on the Internet, then we groan and move on. But if they say, well, my doctor told me, and and he read it in some prestigious medical journal, right, we're, we're a lot more likely to listen. 
Well, Paul has been seized by his fellow Jews, arrested by a Roman soldier, and now he stands before Herod Agrippa, a Jewish ruler who holds the title King of the Jews. And Agrippa was one of those who had his feet firmly planted in both Roman and Jewish culture. And Paul aims his speech straight at Agrippa. You see that in, in chapter 26, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And then Paul punctuates his speech throughout with phrases like, O King, and O King, and O King Agrippa, again and again. He is, he is confronting King Agrippa throughout, and by the end, he will confront King Agrippa directly with the claims of Scripture. And Paul argues throughout in, in kind of three steps in this short passage. In each step, he discusses both the source and the content of his gospel. And he, first, he starts out, uh, he gives his defense in chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. See, what Paul says is, I've, I've always been a strict Jew. And Paul doesn't see his life as a Christian undermining that. Notice in that verse, he says, uh, according to uh, the strictest party of our religion. Our religion, not their religion, our religion. He goes on in verses 6 and 7, he says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Paul says to Agrippa that his message is grounded in the promises given to the fathers. As far as Paul is concerned, his message is nothing but what God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that what God promised, he has now fulfilled. See, as far as Paul is concerned, the Jewish hope was always the hope of the resurrection. And that was true, especially for the party of the Pharisees, uh, though not for the party of the Sadducees in that day. And so what was Paul's gospel? That, that, that what God promised, a resurrection, he has now fulfilled in Jesus. Hence verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? God has promised to raise the dead, and guess what he's done? He's raised the dead. And so what is the source of Paul's message right from the start? The promises of God given to the patriarchs. That's what he says. But he goes on in verses 9 through 12, and he describes how he himself had persecuted the name of Jesus. And then verses 13 through 18, how Jesus had appeared to him on the Damascus Road. The way Paul tells the story at this point kind of emphasizes the, the objectivity of the revelation. There was a light from heaven brighter than the sun, and everyone falls to the ground, right? This is not Paul's private hallucination, right? Others see something and hear something. And what is the, the punchline of his story, so to speak? Verse 19, Paul says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision. See, so what's the source of Paul's message? Well, it's the promises of God to the fathers and then this heavenly vision on the Damascus road. Finally, Paul uh, has this concluding summary at the end in verse 22 where he says this, 
He says, to this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. See, what is the source of Paul's message? It's the prophets and Moses. And notice how, how Paul presents himself here throughout. He is a, a zealous Jew, hoping in the Old Testament promises, obedient to the heavenly vision, proclaiming the message of Moses and the prophets. Now, our tendency is to emphasize the discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New. In fact, one time I was having a discussion with someone kind of at random, and we were talking about some matter that the scriptures uh, pertain to, and I mentioned something from the Old Testament, and he said, oh yeah, well that's the Old Testament. As if that somehow negated my point, right? Our tendency is to emphasize the discontinuity between the two, but not so for Paul. He emphasizes here the continuity. Yes, there, there was a heavenly vision, but, but there were heavenly visions in the Old Testament. That, for his Jewish contemporaries, would not be a point of discontinuity. And of course, Paul's account of his vision is sandwiched between his hope in the promises and his proclamation of the prophets. And so here's the point. Speaking to a Jewish king, Paul can simply say, verse 27, Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And that, for Paul, clinches his argument about Jesus. If you believe the prophets, you should believe Paul. Now, this is even an argument for those who do not have a prior commitment to the Old Testament. Uh, just look at the Old Testament and look at the New. Do you see how Jesus is the fulfillment of thousands of years of Jewish hopes? Do you see how he fulfills the prophecies? This is, this is no coincidence, right? This is no fluke. It's not an accident. This is the hand of God guiding providence to bring about what he has promised. Now, to be sure, when we look at the Old Testament and Jesus, there is both continuity and discontinuity. There is continuity, right? Paul says nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. But there's also discontinuity. What the prophets and Moses said would come to pass has come to pass. Jesus did come and do something epoch-making, right? World-changing. But the discontinuity is not the discontinuity of disagreement, but it's the discontinuity of fulfillment, right? The, the change that takes place between the Old and the New Testaments is the change that takes place between the planting of a seed and the growth of the tree, not the kind of change that takes place when you dig up the tree and put it in a parking lot, right? It's an organic growth, not, not a change of course, not a wipe this out and let's start over type change. It's the kind of change that happens as, as, as two spouses grow older together, right? They change. They're not the same people they were when they got married 20 years earlier. It's not the change that happens when you divorce one spouse for a new one, right? There's a change, but within this fundamental continuity. And so what happens in the New Testament is nothing, Paul says, nothing but what Moses and the prophets said would happen. What God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled. So what has he promised? Well, first, we, we've looked at the gospel's source, Moses and the prophets. This brings us to the gospel's message, resurrection victory. Do you know the gospel? There, there are lots of false gospels out there. Lots of ways the gospel is misrepresented. Uh, there's the gospel of self-fulfillment, right? Trust in Jesus and he will make all your hopes and dreams come true. There's the gospel of, of moral conformity, right? If you obey and do what God says, he will love you. 
Sometimes Christianity is confused with these. Either the gospel is about my own personal fulfillment or the gospel is about, about my own personal effort. And both of these quote-unquote gospels right, miss something key or miss many things key. The first misses my sin and rebellion. The gospel can't be about simply my own personal fulfillment, fulfilling my desires, my wants, my hopes, my dreams, because my desires are so often sinful. Does God really want to fulfill my rebellious hopes and dreams? The second misses Christ's saving work, right? The gospel is not about uh, my own personal effort. Right? My, my behavior falls way short and always will. So a gospel of human effort is really no gospel at all. It's not good news. Well, the gospel of grace does address both of these things, human satisfaction and God's love, but it says that both are found only in Jesus. It is his work that is central. That's what Paul preaches. And that's what we see here. Beginning with the summary of Festus back in verses 18 and 19. It's a great summary because here a non-Christian is saying what he understands the gospel to be. Back in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 25. Festus says this. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed... Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. What is Paul's message, according to Festus? Well, there's a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserts to be alive. That's Paul's message. It's about the resurrection. Then you have verses 6 through 8. Paul says his message is about the hope in the promises uh, given to the fathers. What were those promises? Well, central to them all was the promise of resurrection. This is what Paul has taught from the start. Uh, think about Acts 13, when Paul first started preaching and we first hear his message. Paul says this, And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. See, Paul quotes promises from the Psalms and Isaiah to say, here's what God promised. He would not let his holy one see corruption. And here's what God did. He did not let his holy one see corruption. Hence verse 8, right? Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? This is what he promised, and this is what he did. Then you have uh, the appearance of Jesus on the road. Uh, notice Jesus' commission to Paul in chapter 26, verse 16. Jesus says this, I have, appoint, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. And the word witness there is key. Uh, in Acts 1.8, Jesus said that the apostles would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, later in Acts chapter 1, a twelfth apostle is chosen, one who had been with Jesus during his whole ministry so that he could be an eyewitness of the resurrection. And here Paul on the Damascus road sees the risen Jesus and is commissioned by the risen Jesus to be a witness to what he saw. See, Paul's message is Jesus has been raised from the dead. And Paul himself is an eyewitness of that fact. 
And finally, just in case we missed it, up to this point, Paul spells it out again in verses 22 and 23, where he says, continuing on with what we read earlier, uh, he says, So I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. See, he, say, he says Jesus suffered and he was the first to rise from the dead. See, this is the heart of the gospel. Not merely, not merely, or not simply, not only, that Jesus died for sin. That obviously is central to the gospel as well. But also that Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise, in fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise, the gospel is a sham. Christianity is a sham if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If he did rise from the dead, everything changes. On the one hand, the resurrection means not just that death is undone, but that the power of guilt and sin is broken. You see, death is the wages of sin. If death is overturned, it can only be because the verdict of sin has been overturned as well. And yet there's more. Resurrection uh, does mean that death does not have the final word, but, but Jesus' resurrection isn't in a vacuum. It's not a random event that happened in a random time and random place. Jesus rose in fulfillment of the promises of the Father, which means that God's promises are true, that God keeps his promises, God is faithful. It also means for Paul that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, right? Jesus, who, who is a king in the line of David, who receives the promises of David and so was raised as David's royal son. Right? Jesus' resurrection for Paul proves that Jesus is the Messiah. He's received the promises that God gave to David, that he would sit a king on his throne forever. Jesus is fundamentally the Jewish king, the king in the line of David. And if Jesus is not the Jewish king, he's nothing. And as the true king of the Jews, of course, God is putting the nations under his feet through the spread of the gospel. But that really brings us to our next point. And so we've looked at the gospel source, Moses and the prophets, the gospel's message, the resurrection victory of Jesus, and now the gospel's implications, repentance and inclusion. Acceptance is a, a, a tricky thing, I think, in every time and place, right? Who accepts who and on what basis are they accepted? Uh, some of my earliest memories are moving in the middle of kindergarten and feeling like an outsider in kindergarten. Kindergarten, I was five years old, and yet that memory is implanted on my mind. Morally, conservative cultures tend to have high standards of acceptance. Our modern culture, on the other hand, which focuses more on individual self-fulfillment, at times rejects the very idea of standards of acceptance. So where does the gospel fall, right? Is, does it fall in the side of impossibly high standards, get everything right and we will accept you, or no standards at all, right? The everybody's special kind of acceptance, accept people no matter who they are or what they've done. Which, by the way, right, hidden underneath that accept everyone way of life is actually a hidden standard, accept everyone as long as they also accept everyone. <laughs> but where does the gospel fall? My answer, of course, is, well, it's complicated. On the one hand, God gives us an impossibly high standard. He gives us his perfect law. He says, do this and you will live. But, of course, we've all broken that law. 
On the other hand, we're commanded to love one another, love our neighbor, and even love our enemy, which seems about as broad as it gets. And so where does the gospel fall? Is it impossibly high standard or no standard at all? There are quite a few things that, that we could say here, I guess, but look at verse 18 to start. Verse 18, Christ sends Paul to the Gentiles in order to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, many of Paul's fellow Jews were scandalized that Paul would accept Gentiles. Gentiles were pagans. Gentiles worshipped idols. But here is the key in this verse, right? Paul calls them to turn from all of that. He called them, in other words, to repentance. And upon turning, Jesus said they would receive two things. One, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus had died for sin. Jesus bore our sin, as Peter puts it elsewhere. Uh, again, in 1 Peter 3, uh, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. As the righteous one, he took our punishment that we might be forgiven. Sometimes this is called the great exchange, right? Jesus takes our sin and punishment. He gives us his righteousness and life. And yet there's more. Repentance not only brings forgiveness, but also, verse 18, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. See, not just forgiveness, but acceptance. Not just forgiveness, but a place, a home, belonging among the people of God. And so it's true, on the one hand, God's standard of acceptance is impossibly high. God desires moral perfection. That's, that's not a, you know, a perfect score on your SATs or, or a perfect home or some such thing, right? But perfect love and goodness and kindness and all the rest is much harder than a perfect score on your SATs. And to that standard, none of us have lived up. And so God sent his son to fulfill that standard on our behalf, the righteous for the unrighteous, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And now through turning from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the Messiah King Jesus, we find both the forgiveness of our, our sins and acceptance in Jesus' name. Again, as the, as the true king of the Jews, God is putting the nations under Jesus' feet through the spread of the gospel. That's what he promised back in the Old Testament, right? Psalm 2, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 72, which is speaking of the Davidic king, it says, may he have his dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, like the ones Brian prayed for a few moments ago, and his enemies lick the dust. This is what God has begun to fulfill in the New Testament as well. As Paul says in Colossians 1, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the mission that Jesus gave us in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? I'm the, the king of heaven and earth, he says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Bring the nations to Jesus. 
This is what will be completed on the last day. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, through the gospel, the nations are coming to bow before the Jewish Messiah. In fact, Jew and Gentile both must bow before King Jesus to have their sins forgiven and be included in his family. Now, many of the people in Paul's day, missing the fulfillment that was happening right before their eyes, did not like the idea that Paul preached to Gentiles, much less eat with them. Right? They saw the Gentiles as unclean, especially for those who kept the law so scrupulously, the, 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 the cleanliness laws, to simply accept those who were unclean was like a slap in the face. Which brings us to our last point. So we've talked about the gospel source, Moses and the prophets, the gospel's message, the resurrection victory of Jesus, the gospel's implications, right? Repentance for the forgiveness of sin and inclusion in the body of Christ. Now we'll talk about the gospel's offense, humbling madness. It seems that Paul actually didn't finish his speech. You might have thought it was kind of long for one of Paul's speech, but he, it seems he didn't even finish because at some point Festus simply interrupts. Verse 24 says, And as Paul was saying these things in his defense, so as Paul was saying these things, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. As far as Festus is concerned, Paul was speaking nonsense. Now, perhaps Festus was worried that his distinguished guest would see this as a waste of time. Or maybe Festus really saw all this resurrection stuff as just plain silly. Paul himself had said earlier when he wrote 1 Corinthians that the gospel is foolishness to Gentiles. Does it seem foolish to you? Does it seem foolish to you that God should raise a man from the dead? Paul's response, though, is measured. Verses 25 and 26, Paul says, uh, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Jesus' teaching and arrest and trial and death and the reports of his resurrection were well known. That his body was missing was actually an undisputed fact of the historical record. No one denied that. Now, some had said his body was stolen so that his followers could claim that he rose. That's true. But Paul reported that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people after his resurrection. This was not a handful of doubtful eyewitnesses. Many, if not all of them, knew him before his death, and so they could confirm that this was Jesus, truly risen from the dead. And with such a well-attested event, Paul says there, there's nothing irrational going on. You know, sometimes we think, well, the early Christians lived in a gullible age. Of, of course they believed this resurrection nonsense, but not us, right? We live in the age of reason. Actually, in the, in the first century, for, for Gentiles at least, the resurrection was absurd. The whole goal of life was to escape the body, to be free from the prison of the passions of the flesh. Why would one want to rise from the dead? That didn't make any sense to Gentiles. 
they were far less inclined to believe in the resurrection. Hence Festus's claim, Paul, your great learning is driving you mad. You're crazy. This doesn't make any sense. And nevertheless, here were the early Christians, right? Believing the unbelievable, that God should raise a man from the dead. But for Paul, right, at least, uh, Jewish people should not have the same incredulity, right? They should not have the same unbelief. This was what God promised to the fathers. This was what Moses and the prophets taught. And so Paul turns to King Agrippa and he puts to him the question in verse 27. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Now we hesitate to be so direct, but we probably should be more direct than we are. Sometimes people need to be directly confronted with the truth, right? Do you believe this? Agrippa's answer, of course, is really a, a kind of non-answer. In verse 28, he's, he says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now, now maybe King Agrippa was af- afraid of what Festus would think if he agreed with this nutcase Paul. At the same time, maybe because of his personal convictions or uh, perhaps because of his Jewish constituents, Agrippa could not deny his belief in Scripture. Notice he doesn't give an answer to Paul's question. He doesn't say, no, I don't believe the prophets. And he doesn't say, yes, I do believe the prophets, because he feels trapped. If he says no, right, he he may be denying his own convictions. If he says yes, he's going to look like a fool in front of Festus. So he simply says, would you persuade me? Paul's famous answer, of course, should be the cry of all of us, verse 29, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. See, the gospel's source is Moses and the prophets. The gospel is nothing but what Moses and the prophets said would come to pass has indeed come to pass. The gospel's message is the resurrection victory of Jesus. Jesus has conquered both sin and death through his resurrection from the dead. He's risen from the dead as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. The gospel's implications are repentance and inclusion in the family of God. We find acceptance not through moral conformity, or we would never find acceptance, but through repentance, turning from sin to God, to Jesus, in order to find forgiveness and belonging in Him. The gospel's offense is this humbling madness, right? How foolish that God should raise the dead. How offensive that you say, I'm not good enough. But that acceptance is free, or undeserved, or unearned. Well, does the gospel seem foolish to you? Are you unwilling to accept the premise that a man should rise from the dead? Have you actually looked at the facts of the case? Are you willing to bet your life that it isn't true? It's a big gamble. Or like many of Paul's Jewish brothers, is the gospel an offense to you? Right? Does the offer of free grace seem too free Do you think people should have to earn their way up? They should at least have to be a little better than they are. Or does it seem too humbling? What do you mean I'm not good enough? After all I've done, I've kept these laws scrupulously. I've done everything I was told to do. How can you say? I've been a good person. How can you say I haven't lived up? To many, the gospel is an offense. To others, it is folly. Paul says, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
And this is why Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. Soften your heart. Humble yourself. Turn from your old way of life. Turn to Jesus so that you will find in him the forgiveness of sins and acceptance before the throne of God in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would humble us, that you would humble our hearts, that we would have a willingness to not just hear the words of truth, but to believe them, to receive them, to embrace Jesus with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, to trust in what he has done on our behalf, both in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, that we would know that in his victory alone can we find victory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.